Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brendan will be teaching out of the book of Matthew. We're going to continue our study this morning in Matthew chapter 18, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles there. We began Matthew 18 last week. It's a two-part series through this chapter, and I have entitled it Ecclesia, which is the term for the church. Why have I called it that? Well, because what we see in Matthew 18 is really instruction for how we are to function as the church, the body of Christ. As Pastor Jimmy prayed this morning, the church is not the building, it's you and I. And when we consider that, when we begin to think about how we are, in fact, the church, when we think about Jesus saying, I will build my church then, of course, there's analogy, even us being called living stones, being fitted together, right? Building up this this building, if you will. The building is not a building as as we understand it today. It's, It's us. It's the church. And so we're the ones that he's building. We're the ones that he's fitting together. And so when we think about that, it's truly an incredible thing. But then there's there's some implications that come along with that of how we are to function with one another, how we're to live our lives, how we are to treat one another. And it's here in Matthew chapter 18 that we have some instruction on those things. This chapter doesn't include everything about how we're to function as the body of Christ, but it includes many things. In fact, today, as we pick up, and we'll, we'll review for a moment uh, the first part of the chapter, but we'll be picking up in verse 15 through the end of the chapter, what we're going to come to today are the topics of, within the body of Christ, uh, how do we exercise discipline? How do we deal with, with sin? And then uh, as an extension of that, then how do we forgive? How do we reconcile? And so we'll, we'll consider this morning discipline and forgiveness. You know, when I think about discipline, there's, a, there's an event in my own life that I often remember when I was younger. <clears throat> I was in the first grade there in, in school, and it was during the winter months, and so there was snow outside. Uh, some of you aren't very familiar with that, but yeah, you get you still go outside, okay? You're expected to bundle up and go out and be in the snow for about 30 minutes so that you can come back in all wet, cold, and stinky for the teachers to enjoy. <laughs> Seemed like an odd thing for us to do, but we enjoyed it. We went outside, and of course, what would any first grade boy do who was outside playing in the snow? Very good. I had the same thought. A snowball. In fact, my experience in the snow with my own family was, was only that. Make snowballs, have snowball fights, build things. And so I didn't think anything of it when I picked up a chunk of snow and turned it into a snowball and hurled it across the playground at another kid. <clears throat> well, it hit that boy. It was a perfect throw. <laughs> Boom! Right? I think, yes! I did exactly what I was supposed to do in that moment. Well, that boy didn't think so. And so he went and told the playground lady. Now, anybody who hears playground lady, you just know that's scary, okay? In fact, any of you familiar with the movie The Goonies? Anybody? You remember the, 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 uh, the bad guys, the mom of the bad guys? In our minds, that's who that was, okay? This lady in many ways represented the, the mean mom from The Goonies, okay? So as you're getting hauled off to meet with her on the playground, this was a... This was a a very scary ordeal, okay? 
And so, you know, fast forward, what happens that day? Well, I get detention. Detention's a big deal for a first grader, especially at this particular time when the detention was noted on a big yellow slip of paper. And what did they do with that slip of paper to ensure that your parents knew that you got detention? Well, they would pin that big yellow piece of paper right to the front of you. And you were told not to remove that. It was only your parents who could remove that piece of paper. So for the rest of the day, I walked around with the yellow detention slip pinned to my shirt. You can only imagine the ridicule I endured throughout the rest of the day as you walk into every class and, oh, and then walking through the halls, oh, and then onto the school bus, oh, right? By the end of the day, you're thinking, I will never, ever throw a snowball on that playground again. Now, I'm not advocating for that sort of discipline, right? I think it was well-intentioned, but not entirely thought out, right? Because it was more just a matter of, we're going to shame him into changing the behavior. That's not exactly the way things are to work, biblically speaking. Uh, But there was at least, and what I appreciate, at least at that time, somewhat differently than today, a desire to say, we're going to have discipline. We're going to have discipline. We're going to address behavior. And the fact of the matter is, when we think about the church today, we, in the church, much like the rest of our world, much like the rest of our culture, have sort of decided that discipline oftentimes is a little too uncomfortable. And it shouldn't be that way. As we consider Scripture this morning, what we find here is that what, what Jesus is communicating to us and the passage we'll consider is that sin must be addressed. Sin must be addressed within the body of Christ because if sin is not addressed, it will fester. And when something festers, the organism that it's festering amongst or within grows sick. And I would submit to you this morning that particularly the church in America is in many respects sick today. The church is sick today because we've allowed sin to just go unchecked, undisciplined, In fact, in many respects, we've done it with the greatest of intentions, but in doing so, we've replaced healthy and loving confrontation of sin for comfort. What do I mean by that? Well, we oftentimes now comfort one another in our sin instead of confronting it, instead of addressing it. What does that look like? Well, the, 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 willing, the willing person, the person who maybe is desiring some sort of accountability because they're experiencing the effects of their own sin begins to share that with those within the church. And what is our response? Oh, it's, it's okay. It's okay. And again, I, I say this with the best of intentions, not, not necessarily wanting a person to continue in sin, but we're so focused on grace and we're so focused on mercy sometimes that we just want to say, oh, it's, not, it's not that bad. You're, you're not a bad person. It's okay. I understand. And we try to really show grace for one another. And we try to then, what happens is we basically support each other in their sin. Someone's confessing and we, we in effect say to them, don't do anything different. Just continue in it. It's okay. Sometimes that also comes from a place of, well, I struggle with that same thing too. And if I, if I suggest to you that you need to change, then what does that mean for me? And, and you can see how all of this stuff starts to get really muddied. And, and, and then in, in the end, we're just all continuing without real regard for our personal holiness, 
for the sin in our own lives and how that affects our relationship with the Lord and how it affects our relationships with one another. And you see, Jesus gives us instruction for this. And praise God that He does. He gives us specific steps to take in addressing sin in another's life here in Matthew 18. And it's not out of place at all. It's important as we consider this that we look at all that Jesus has been communicating to them. By way of quick review, if you recall, the beginning of the chapter starts with the disciples arguing amongst themselves about what? Who's the greatest? Right? A consistent demonstration of humility by the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has not yet really changed their hearts and their minds. They haven't grasped it yet. They will. They absolutely will. They're going to be a force to be reckoned with as Jesus hands off the reins of the ministry to them to establish and build the church. But they're not quite there yet. And so as they consider what they believe to be the soon coming kingdom of Jesus Christ, they begin to argue amongst themselves as to who will be greatest within it. But then, of course, Jesus, in, in knowing what it is that they're arguing about and, and asking them the question, replies to them by essentially saying, you ought to be concerned about whether or not you're even going to be in the kingdom. Not just simply what your role in it will be. And then He begins to give them an understanding of if you want to come to Me, if you want to know Me, and, if, and certainly if you want to be in the kingdom, you shouldn't be talking about how great you'll be. In fact, you need to be talking about how humble you need to be. And He gives us the example of a little child. A child who is ever dependent upon their parents. Who feels safe in the, in the presence of their parents. And, and, and so it's, it's, it's like a child that we are to come unto Jesus in complete dependence on Him. Recognizing that we have no power. We have no authority. We have no significance in this life. It's only Him. And so we, as we sang this morning, we run to Him knowing that You're the one that I want to be near. And, and so Jesus says, this is how you are to be. And, and furthermore, for all those little children in my kingdom, for all those who believe on Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, we need to be taking very seriously how we care for one another, how we treat one another, ensuring that we do not offend one another, that is, sin against each other, uh, or lead someone astray. And so right there, Jesus begins to speak about the importance of us considering our personal holiness. Considering the sin in our lives. Knowing that it has an effect on the body. Jesus takes it a step further just to show how important each and every child of God is. He gives the example of a shepherd. A shepherd who's willing to leave the 99 behind to go after the one as, as radical as that may seem, as crazy as that may seem, that in our, in our minds and the way we work, we think, well, we'll stick with the masses, protect the bigger group, forget about the one that just wanders away. But Jesus says, no, everyone is important to me. I'm not going to lose one. And so we begin to understand more of the heart of Jesus and so what we see here as this, as this chapter builds is the, is the importance of humility, of dealing with pride, the importance of radical commitment to personal holiness, the importance of great concern for one another. And then we come to this place then where Jesus begins to, and, and, and I believe what prompts this is, is an understanding that as much as we do that, there is still going to be offense. There is going to be sin that comes in. There is going to be hurt. And so what do we do when that happens? And that's where we find ourselves this morning then in verse 15. If you'd like to read along with me, let's read verses 15 through 20. 
It says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if you will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. You see, it is good news here that uh, Jesus gives us instruction on how to handle one another. Indeed, the Word of God is in many respects a manual for life. And we saw there at the beginning of this, in verse 15, it says, Moreover, and so Jesus is building on uh, what it is that he's communicated to them. He says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you. There's a few things that we should consider here as, as we look at this passage. First, that this is a brother. Now, you could exchange brother for sister here, the implication being this is a Christian. This is a fellow believer. This is not instruction for confronting sin amongst unbelievers. This is instruction for confronting sin amongst those in the church, okay? Secondly, there is some debate based on the original manuscripts as to whether it truly specifies a sin against another or just sin in general. Now, when we consider other passages in Scripture, say, for example, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it says there, the words of the Apostle Paul, if a brother is discovered in sin... Restore such a one. And so I would submit to you that, that uh, it doesn't really matter here if, if uh, you know, some manuscripts say against you and others just say sin itself. Both are going to come into view here. We need to be dealing with sin in each other's lives. We need to be addressing it. And this helps us to see that the instruction in Matthew 18, uh, if we look at passages like Galatians 6.1, that it, it's less about perhaps a specific offense one to another, and more about the process of dealing with sin in a brother or sister's life. And thirdly, as we look at this first part of this verse here, we're talking about sin, okay? That may seem obvious, but it's important that we note that. This is not about preference, okay? We don't go and confront people based off the fact, well, I, I just like things this way. When we're talking about biblical confrontation of sin, it's, it's truly about sin, it's not preference. It's not about hurt feelings that are just sort of rooted in sensitivity. This is about sin that can be identified with Scripture. That you can go to someone and say, you're, you're doing something here that's in direct contradiction to the Word of God. Okay. Now when we think about our sin, and remember, go back to what Jesus has already said. He, he says regarding sin in our life, if, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, verse 8, cut it off. Cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. What Jesus has said already is be radical about your sin. And remember that we must be willing to allow the Lord to search our hearts to reveal sin in our lives because sin comes in a number of different ways. 
it's important that we don't just pass over these scriptures and say, well, yeah, I used to deal with this in my life, but I sort of dealt with that, right? I used to deal with, with, with drugs and alcohol or sex or different things like that, and, and, and that's not an issue anymore, and so now I'm good. Well, now you've just demonstrated some pride, right? And that itself is a sin. It's funny, just this morning, a very brief conversation with someone, and it was the conversation that was, uh, it's, it's probably the third or fourth time I've had this conversation in just even the last few days, and that's the use of social media and the things that people are posting on social media. That's sin, guys. When we are posting things on social media that we are just so convinced that our opinion just to be, needs to be heard by the world, and, and it's offensive, and it's not rooted in Scripture, and it's just an opinion, be careful. And, and, and remember what it says here. If you lead someone astray and in that setting, you don't even know. You may not even know the people that you're affecting and the people that you're impacting and the way in which y- your, your words, just a few words, because that's all you're really allowed to put in there. There's no real room for any sort of dialogue, any sort of conversation, how misunderstood it may be. We've got to be careful about all these different things. And I'm not saying we need to walk around, right, just sort of walking on eggshells about everything in life. But no, let's be smart. If we focus instead on just loving people, loving God and loving people, there's a whole lot of things in our lives I'm convinced oftentimes that we'll just sort of, oh, I don't need to deal with that anymore. That doesn't need to be in my life anymore. And so let's be willing to evaluate our lives, to search our hearts and say, where is there sin in my life? Where is there, where is there pride in my life? And so we're talking about sin here. We're talking about things that truly we can look at in in Scripture and say, yeah, this is just simply not pleasing to the Lord. And so then let's look at Jesus' instruction then for confrontation. Because here's the thing, confrontation is difficult. It's a hard thing to do. And so it's wonderful that Jesus gives us instruction here on how to approach it. And he gives us four steps, as we just read here, four steps. First, he says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. So step one, we see that you are to go and confront your brother or sister and tell them the fault. Make them aware of what it is that they have done, whether it's sin that has been found out that you just may be aware of, or whether it is, in fact, an offense towards you. But note here that you do this alone. Uh, Unless, I would say, uh, I would say you do this alone in a a same-sex interaction, right? So men confronting men, women confronting women. Men, if you feel the need for some reason to confront another woman, have some accountability with you, okay, and vice versa. But these are intended to be one-on-one conversations. It starts there. And here's the other thing. It starts there with you having that conversation, okay, not with you telling several other people first about the conversation that you're going to have in the form of a prayer request, okay? Hey, pray for me about this, right? And that, that is not licensed to just tell the world, things okay and sometimes sadly we want to do that so it starts first with the conversation yes pray seek the lord and then go have this go have this conversation now in that what's your tone what's your tone going to be when you go and you confront your brother or sister well it doesn't tell us right here jesus doesn't here indicate the tone that you need to have but we see again in scripture elsewhere different ways in which confrontation happens sometimes i would say our tone always should be of course loving right But sometimes the situation may be pretty serious. It may be pretty dire. Think of Nathan confronting David in his sin. Or think even of of Paul. Go back to Galatians. Paul deals with this in Galatians in a couple of different areas. In in chapter 2, verse 11, he speaks of, Paul speaks of what is likely a bit of a heated confrontation that he has with Peter. 
Paul says that he went to Peter and he withstood him to his face for he was to be blamed. Paul doesn't mince words about the fact that I went toe-to-toe with Peter because he was wrong. But then elsewhere, as I alluded to earlier, but the second part of the verse in chapter 6, verse 1, Paul also says that we're to deal with the sin, the sinning brother, with a spirit of gentleness. A spirit of gentleness. And so I think it's a matter of prayer beforehand and the leading of the Holy Spirit to determine how is it that I need to approach this person. But remember, all of this is within the context of humility, right? It's all within the context of humility and with the intention of, that restoration would come, that forgiveness would take place. And so that, that should inform how we approach it. Now, what, what a wonderful thing it is when the issue is handled at step one, right? When you do step one and that person says, oh man, I'm so sorry, would you please forgive me? And they repent of it and you move on. Praise the Lord, right? When that happens. However, as we know, we are not always quick to listen especially when being confronted. And so sometimes it moves on to step 2, verse 16. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. You see, step 2 is if your brother won't receive it, get another brother or two and then confront them again. You see, Jesus here is citing Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. And this was sort of the established way in which someone was to uh, build evidence, okay? Uh, if it was going to escalate beyond this point, if it's going to proceed beyond step two, you're going to need a couple of others to testify of that loving confrontation. Another brother or two brothers or, or sisters to, to say, yes, so-and-so went and lovingly confronted the sin, but they would not receive it. They wouldn't hear it. Now, oftentimes, as far as church discipline today... It gets to step number two, okay? And we're pretty comfortable with those first two steps, but it often ends here. Now, prayerfully, the significance to a believer of having a few of their friends and fellow believers confront them wakes them up to their sin, wakes them up to the offense, and they repent, but it's not always the case. Unfortunately, though, what is often not the case either are the offended brothers continuing with the process of discipline and proceeding with steps three and four. Oftentimes today, church discipline ends here. But Scripture tells us, and these are the words of Jesus, remember, that in verse 17 it says, and if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. You see, step, step uh, three here is share the sin within the church. That is, tell the body about it. Inform the body of believers about what has been happening. And in so doing, what's intended to happen, and this may sound extreme, but what's intended to happen is that you unleash an army of people who are then going to pursue the sinning brother or sister. To get them? To put a hurting on them? No. To draw them back. To be a part of drawing them unto repentance. Now, this is where, again, not to be uh, overstated here, but this is where we get to this place where, to many, it sort of feels out of line, right? And the fact is, we do not see much of this within the church today. And I would, I would submit to you that that's somewhat of a problem to go back to the earlier comment there about sin festering within the church. Now, in some cases, it may be that because leadership has handled it differently, um, They've approached it a little bit of a different way. 
Or I wonder, though, also if it's maybe in part because we're not allowing a level of transparency in our own lives for people to even be able to to kind of know what's going on, to see the sin in our lives. If we're so guarded, if we're so protective of, 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 of our life and not really uh, being vulnerable and entering into the community of believers, well then, will anyone ever even find some of these things out? And, 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 and someone may be thinking, well, yeah, that's exactly right. I don't want people to find out. But then what you're doing is robbing the body of Christ of your gifts, of the way in which God wants to use you in that community. And, and you're not allowing anyone to come alongside you and hold you accountable to, to, to a relationship with the Lord that can be fruitful. You see, we must here consider Jesus' his instructions. He doesn't give us an option. Jesus doesn't say, when you get to step three, if you're comfortable with it, start to do this. He says, no, this is how it's to be done. Now, here's the thing. I do think context here is important, and I believe that it would be fair to consider or consider whether or not Jesus had congregations of hundreds and even thousands in view when he was making this comment. You imagine the, the megachurch that has several thousand people in a congregation on a Sunday morning, and they come up and they begin to communicate the sin in a brother's life that they've been dealing with. At that point, it can begin to seem really sort of like, wow, this is extreme, right? And imagine then to the issue of social media, what might begin to transpire in that moment, right? If people say, here's what's happening in my church right now. And I think, I genuinely think it's a fair question to ask. Was this in view when Jesus was communicating this? Knowing at that particular time that, that, that churches, and, and, and for the most part, most churches throughout history being much smaller gatherings of people, much more communal in nature, right? I think it's a fair question to consider. And toward that end, I appreciate it then when churches, large churches today, seek to approach this maybe a little bit differently through the use of small groups and life groups and, and, and other smaller gatherings within that greater body. And so within the smaller body, uh, or, or perhaps within the context, again, of a, of a life group with elder oversight in a much larger church, whatever the case may be here, we don't know the answer for sure, but the goal here, what we do know, is to enlist more believers in the pursuit of this fellow believer. But again, think of the implication there. That means that we need to, we need to know, we need to be willing to go after one another, to pursue each other, to be burdened for the things in each other's lives. And so again, the goal here is not a public shaming, but rather repentance, rather a, a, a turning. But unfortunately, there are times when step three does not work. And we see step four as we continue, but if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Step four, if after three rounds of confrontation from individual uh, to involving uh, the body, uh, the, the brother does not hear it and does not repent, here's the significance of this, they are to be excommunicated from the church. When we use that word, when we talk about that today, I mean, that sounds really uh, antiquated, doesn't it? Sounds really, us uh, like what you did in the medieval times. Excommunion, that's what the, the, you know, the Holy Catholic Church did way back in the day. But no, that's a, biblical, that's a biblical word that's still to be used today. That is, they're to be sent out from the church and treated as an unbeliever or one who has broken a covenant. Now again, this, if, if, if step three seemed harsh, this seems even more harsh as we ask the question of, isn't, isn't church the place that they should be? Should we really drive them away from the church? 
Shouldn't we allow them to be amongst us? Well, the answer is not when there is willful disobedience and unrepentant sin. Why? Because Jesus has already said, because of the effect on the rest of the body. And remember here, it's important to understand that this isn't about just, okay, you're being difficult, now get out. But this is about uh, prayerfully hoping that repentance would come. That, that this would cause them to turn around. That this would cause them to consider the significance of their actions. Paul writes in, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 5, of the person that's continuing in sexual immorality, he says, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul's essentially saying, let them go out into the world where Satan has influence and let them get kind of beat up a little bit such that they would go, man, I want to come back. And it's even more important then, right? And listen, we're not perfect. But it's even more important then that we are constantly focused on the love that exists amongst us, caring for one another, doing the things that biblically we're called to do, so that when they're in that situation, they would remember and recall, man, that was a loving place. That was a loving body. They cared for me. I want to go back into that. I want to be restored to that. Paul gives uh, similar instruction to the church in Thessalonica in Second Thessalonians in chapter 3, verse 14. He says, if, And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. You might hone in a little bit on that word there, ashamed, thinking, well, hey, that's, I thought we didn't want to do that. That was sort of like my detention slip hanging from my, my shirt, right? Well, note what Paul says. He says, you don't count him as an enemy. You admonish him as a brother. And within this context, a right definition of ashamed here would be uh, that it's being used within the context of prompting a change. It's actually a definition of this very word in the Greek that it's someone who, who does an opposite action. They, they turn around, repentance occurs. And so you see, this process is a difficult one. When anybody thinks about this, and maybe there are even some here right now or watching online that have a, a certain level of discomfort about either one, holding somebody accountable, or maybe even some sin in your own life that you're thinking, man, I don't want to have to go through this process of somebody confronting me on this. This is difficult. I am not suggesting this morning that this is just an easy thing for us to do. In fact, that should be evident because when's the last time you saw us bring somebody before the body or bring an issue? before the body in this way and so i'm not even just casting this uh, upon other churches out there i'm i'm even as a pastor of this church reflecting on lord do we need to do a better job of this because it's not something we run to it's not something we do frequently church discipline is not easy but it is intended to affect change and to result in restoration and we are not at liberty to decide that we just don't want to do it because it'd be easier just to tolerate one another's sin that's foolishness rather this is the authority and the responsibility that we have been given as kingdom citizens so take it now back to chapter 16 a passage we considered a few weeks ago 
Look, at, look here, at, think about the context of, of Matthew 16 and Jesus communicating with Peter that he's going to build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it, right? And that uh, all authority has been given to him. And he talks about giving him the keys of the kingdom. And the implication of that, we're now seeing greater insight, further insight into what Jesus was communicating there. As you look at verse 18 here, it says, Assuredly, I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Look at this. Jesus said this just two chapters before, and now he's saying it again. So it's important for us to remember the context here. When Jesus is talking about binding and loosing, we see here again, it is rooted in authority. It is rooted in terms of carrying out and living out the word of God. Jesus used this same language, as I mentioned, back in Matthew 16 when he was addressing Peter, when he was addressing the building of his church, reminding us again that this verse is not so much about the believer's authority and power over all things as much as within the context of discipline and the authority to judge and to forgive based on the Word of God. And so when he says, you got the keys to the kingdom of heaven, it means that we're doing this. It means that we're living out body life. That we, Jesus came to save us, right, and to deal with sin. But as sanctification continues to happen and we live uh, amongst the body of Christ, supporting one another, caring for one another, that we need to be about helping to root out sin in each other's lives. Holding each other accountable to that. And so we've got authority to do that. And if we're taking this stuff seriously then we, we're going to be obedient to this. That is, when we follow this process, we, with the authority of heaven, are forgiving offenses, loosing, or judging, binding. And once more, this is not an easy process. Even with specific instruction from Jesus here, this is a difficult thing to do, which prompts Jesus' next statement. Look at verses 19 and 20. Again, I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. You see, this is Jesus' encouragement for carrying out the work of the body. This is one of the most misused passages in Scripture. Not with ill intention. Oftentimes, quoted in the context of, say, for example, a prayer gathering, and likely some of you here have used this verse in this way. I know I did before I really studied it further. What we must understand, what Jesus is speaking about here is, is that when following through on church discipline, because it's a hard thing, remember that He's with you in it. It's not the way that we often use it just to simply declare, well, hey, there's a big group of us together right now, and so Jesus must be in the midst of us, Right? Think about that. Have you ever heard in a prayer gathering before? Or you've, you yourself have been praying before and you've been inclined to kind of think, hey, we're two or more gathered in his name. There he is in the midst of them. And we have this sense of like, hey, that's pretty cool that Jesus is showing up. The implication of us using the verse in that context is when you're by yourself, God isn't there. Right? I mean, think about that. Think about the opposite of it. It doesn't work that way. God is everywhere. So it's not that all of a sudden you need to be like, man, I'm really struggling today and so I need somebody else to come over to my house so that Jesus can show up. No. That's not it at all. What, what Jesus is communicating here is he's saying this is going to be hard. He's saying it's going to be hard for you to carry this out. It's going to be hard to do discipline in this way, but it's important because sin can't remain within the body of Christ. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. 
right? And so he's saying, you need to do this, you need to be obedient to this, but know that when you do this, when you're carrying out discipline, when two or three of you are coming together and you're binding and you're loosing, you're, you're, you're dealing with sin, I'm there. When you're exercising the authority of the kingdom of heaven, I'm there, I'm with you. I'm working through this with you. It's important for us to understand that. So this then is the process to confront sin. And we must be about doing this. But remember that forgiveness is in view. Restoration is in view. That is the point here. So it's not just about discipline. right? That's the thing. Go back to me throwing that snowball, wearing that thing, the, the, the paper of shame on my shirt all day long. right? The problem is, yeah, it, it shamed me into saying I'm never going to do that again, but only because of that. Nobody, nobody worked with me to understand why the behavior needed to change. Nobody worked to affect a heart change, right? I just knew, man, I don't want to experience that humility and that abuse anymore, and so I'm not going to do that. But then I'd do something else stupid. Well, what? I didn't throw a snowball. Yeah, but you did this. Well, you know, and then you go through the same process again instead of going, here's how you're supposed to carry yourself. Here's what's okay and not okay, Right? And so again, it's, it's not about just this process of discipline for the sake of shaming, buddy, shaming someone out of a, a, a behavior, but to grow the body, to improve the body, to ensure that the body's healthy. And so when we think about the whole context of the conversation, humility is that of a child, not causing a fellow Christian to sin, leaving the 99 to go after the one, lovingly and patiently confronting sin with the goal to restore. I mean, all these things are building as Jesus is saying, this is what the kingdom's like. And Peter was, was grasping this as well, but he was obviously somewhat uncomfortable with the implication, which prompts his next question in verse 21. He says, Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? You see, it was understood at the time, and it was taught by the rabbis based on instruction from the prophet Amos, that the right thing was to, give an, was to forgive an offense up to three times. Three strikes, you're out. Right? So Peter here, thinking, I got this. Seven times? Clearly. That's, that's more than twice what they've recommended. That, that clearly has to be what he's, what he's going for here. And, and you see Peter here, he's maybe a bit concerned about the need to endure offenses. Right? So he says, well, surely seven is more, more than gracious before we say enough. Or in today's context, before we before we cancel them, before we kick them out, before we, whatever it is that we want to do today. Because after all, to forgive, well, that requires sacrifice, right? But isn't that meekness? Isn't that humility? Isn't that where Jesus started? Now, I'm not suggesting that in view here in Scripture is just becoming a perpetual doormat for abuses. But the fact is, as Christians, we have ourselves been forgiven much which Jesus then brings into view as he shares this parable. And we'll go fairly quickly through this. In verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And so Jesus, in response to Peter, essentially says, stop counting, Peter, and, stop, and start forgiving. Yes, as many times as it takes. Because as, as Jesus has already stated, each and every one is precious to him. This is the absurdity of leaving the 99 to go after the one. It offends our senses. It offends our rational thinking. Certainly, one could not be expected to forgive so many offenses to demonstrate such grace and such mercy. But such is the kingdom of heaven. 
And once again, for those who wanted to hold positions of greatness in the kingdom, are they even sure they're getting into this kingdom? What will be required of them? Humility. Verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. How much is 10,000 talents? It's a lot. Okay? It's a lot. Jesus is telling this parable and he's using extremes to really convey the principle because 10,000 talents is really equivalent to billions in today's market. This is Jeff Bezos kind of money that this servant is in debt to, to the king. The implication there is that he can't pay it. There's no way he can pay it. It's absolutely impossible for him to pay the debt. Does that sound familiar? Verse 25, but as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. And the servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And so you see this man recognizing that the debt was so great was right to throw himself at the feet of the king, seeking mercy. We all as Christians know this. Yet we also, like this man, seem to think that we will be able still to work off the debt. As he says, be patient, I will pay you all. In verse 27, then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. This significant debt, this massive debt, he forgives it. And so you see Jesus, our king, so moved with compassion, has said, the debt is forgiven. Such a significant debt, far beyond our ability to repay, a debt that he did not owe, he forgives it. He says it's gone. And so friends, what we must understand here is that the Christian life is not about working off the debt. You cannot do it. It's 10,000 talents. It's far more than what you have. The fact is, when coming to Christ, your debt has been forgiven. In that very moment, when you surrendered your life to Christ, it was gone for all time. Praise God. Paul David Tripp writes this, If you perfectly obeyed every command for a thousand years, you'd be no more accepted with God than when you first believed. Can you believe that? And so you see, our ongoing pursuit of Christ, this radical commitment to holiness and to caring for one another, it's simply to be a response to what he's done, not an effort to repay the debt. Knowing this then, understanding that, is to truly know then extravagant grace. We don't deserve it. We cannot earn it. It is all Him. But then it should prompt us as those who have been forgiven much to be a forgiving people. But we see in verse 28, but that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now 100 denarii was not insignificant, it's likely several thousand dollars today, but it's substantially less than the fortune owed to the king that was forgiven. And this servant lays hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. And so when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. And so it's easy for us to see the hypocrisy in this, and perhaps even even some of us are angered because of a story like this. And, And that's the point of it. It's intended to draw us in. For like Peter, our natural tendency is though we ourselves are the 
recipients of extravagant grace in our flesh we feel justified in suggesting that the grace we ourselves ought to extend has a limit on it. But Jesus says in verse 32, Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And so you see, friends, once again, the forgiven should be forgiving. And the question we must ask ourselves are, are we willing to forgive or are we forgiving people? Verse 34, and his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. And here's what's interesting in verse 35. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. It's interesting here because Jesus is not speaking to the multitudes. He's speaking to his disciples. At the very beginning of this passage, he said to them, are you going to even get into the kingdom? And at the end of the passage, he said, this is what's going to happen to you if you're not forgiving. Now, we could dive into that for a good bit here. And, you know, we have the comfort, of course, knowing that Jesus says, I'm not going to lose one. I'm not going to lose one of my sheep. And so there's security in understanding that. But there's also some seriousness here that those who call themselves believers, are we truly living it out? I'm going to invite the worship team up to close us out in song as we consider these last few points that we gather from the chapter. And Jesus says here in this chapter, he says, if I could paraphrase, to use some of our vernacular today that we often kind of use. If you guys want to do life together as the church, if you want to be the church, it starts with humility. It starts with recognizing that you have no position, no power, no authority, to be humble as a child and completely dependent upon Jesus. And from there to be just radical about your personal holiness. To say, man, I don't want any sin in my life that's going to come between me and God and me and my brothers and sisters. And so if that requires that you be extreme in terms of you know, cutting off the hand, cutting off the foot, whatever it is in your life, say, I'm getting rid of it. I'm going to be radical that we do that with then great care for one another, a willingness to just to pursue each other, to say, I'm not going to let this person go. They're struggling. I'm going after them. And what comes along with that then is a willingness to confront sin, to committing to Scripture and to saying, we're going to do this. And it's going to be hard sometimes, and I know it's going to be painful for people at times, but it's with the right heart. It's to restore them, and it's to protect the body of Christ. And then as we do that well, as we commit to obedience to His Word, we're going to trust that He's going to work, that the Spirit is going to move, that people are going to understand that ultimately we're committed to forgiveness as well, that we're not going to withhold that from anyone. We're not going to harbor bitterness in our own hearts, but we're going to be a people willing to go, you know what? I've received extravagant grace and mercy. That God has blessed me in so many ways. He's forgiven so much. Yes, I'll forgive you too. And that then, to a lost and dying world, we wouldn't just be something that just sort of looks similar to the culture as we seek to kind of mimic things. But rather they would go, man, something's different. That community is different. I want to know more. Because rest assured, guys, all the different opinions about what's happening in our country right now and what's going on politically... I am absolutely convinced that there are some more difficult times ahead of us. Not that we need to be afraid of, not that we need to be anxious for, but difficult times that are going to require the church to step up and to be the church, to be the example. And I believe that we can still see great revival in this country if we do that. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks, Lord, for this morning and for this chapter, Lord. It's been a lot, Lord, as we've worked our way through this. 
There's so much here, though, Lord, that we need to consider about what it means to be the body of Christ. And Lord, I pray that it's each of our hearts, Lord, each of our desire that we'd be obedient to this. That we wouldn't just pay it lip service, but that we would take seriously, Lord, we want to be a a fruitful, healthy, well-functioning body of Christ, body of believers, living this out, Lord, on display for Your glory, and so that we might just, Lord, that, that one more might be saved. It'd be worth it, Lord. So Father, help us in this work. I admit myself, Lord, as, the, as a pastor here in this church, Lord, I know there's work to be done. So Lord, help us to pursue it, to be disciplined about discipline, Lord, with the goal of restoration. Help us, Lord, to love one another well. Lord, whatever needs to be done in our hearts to accomplish this work, Lord, may it be so. We surrender ourselves to you, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.